From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Texas. Birds and water holes. Ballpark walls. Old vinyl. Buffalo. What I'd say we have right here is the ultimate Americana list. One of the best things about ReSound is that basically we have no format. We're on for exactly an hour, but that's about the only restriction we have each week, which means that we can play things other shows can't. We can play things that were created for the sake of creation and not to fit into the C segment of Morning Edition, for instance. And that's what we have for you today, a collection of audio that together makes up a work called Dry versus Moist, written and produced by author Rick Moody and independent producer Sherry DeLees engineered by Russell Stapleton, with music composed by Chris Abrams. Now, to wrap your brain around this collection, you should know a little something about how it was created. Rick and Sherry wanted to collaborate, in the truest sense of the word, despite the fact that they were on different continents, North America and Australia. And they also wanted to experiment with the idea of randomness. So Rick asked Sherry to pick 12 topics, anything at all that she was thinking about, and send them to him. He then literally printed them out, cut them up, put them into a hat, and picked out six. And just to prove it was truly random, he videotaped the whole thing and sent the tape to Sherry in Australia. Going to get the hat. Then they each took the randomly selected topics and wrote about them. Rick edited the text and found that the narrative self-sorted into two basic groups. It was sort of at that point that I realized that there was this kind of opposition that was driving the whole thing, which was dry landscapes and wet landscapes. I guess the title sprung up at that moment, and it had a lot to do with my training as a young person in in Levi Strauss's structural anthropology. So it's sort of a joke, you know, Levi Strauss had, had a book called The Raw and the Cooked. And he sort of advanced this argument that all civilization could be mapped onto this opposition between cultures that, that ate raw food and cultures that ate cooked food. So the joke is here that all of the world can somehow be contained in this little opposition between the dry and the moist. And I guess I refined along those lines to try to bring that out. We talk with Sherry and Rick about their work, the process, and their collaboration, and you'll be hearing from them throughout the hour. One of the things to remember when you listen to this piece is that it's atypical of a lot of radio in that it's not the one-to-one relationship that you usually get between text and sound. You hear someone talk about a sound, and then you hear the sound. This is going to be a little different. I feel locked out of a lot of radio that is supposedly uh, more more listener-focused, if you like. I feel it's so kind of tightly constructed and so well-formatted, I think is another way to speak about it, but so sturdily built. I don't find any room for myself, for my own imagination. And, I, you know, I, I see absolutely nothing wrong or luxurious about thinking of radio as a medium that can allow imagination to happen both you know from the makers and then can open up spaces for the listeners to allow their imagination to flourish. <laughs> Dry versus moist is made up of seven segments 
And while they have an order, according to the creators, they don't necessarily have to be heard altogether or in any particular order. Composer Chris Abrams says he thinks of it like an album or a suite of songs that could be randomly sorted to create different listening experiences. We'll start with a piece called Birds. Dry versus moist, part one, birds. I don't know chords, and I don't know any solfege, and I don't know, um, What he did in this dry place, between hosing things down and mopping things up at the Air Force Base, was drive. Let's face it, when he had his few hours of furlough, he was always in the car, and he was always driving, and there was only so much he could do when he had to drive all the time. He could learn another language with one of those instructional tapes. He could learn Arabic. This would be key to job advancement in the contemporary military. That's what this mechanic thought. His friends could have used Arabic where they were going. He too could have learned this language while driving through the desert, the back of his truck full of tubs of solvents and detergents. He could listen to a television actor read some small portion of some big, fat Russian novel. He could dictate a letter to his girlfriend into an old, beat-up cassette recorder plowing through the ruts in the dirt tracks of the desert. At some point, he rose up above that big cement canal, that viaduct that ran hundreds of miles through the state, trying to move around imaginary water. He got out of the car. It was kind of abrupt as decisions went. As far as you could see in any direction, the vast, uncompromising waste. A few lizards, a few snakes, a creosote shrub, some jojoba, palo verde, coyote and bobcat. From the overpass over the canal, you could see limitlessly. There was that mischievous feeling that he somehow contained all of this. He was its vessel. And so he set out on foot. Actually, the government owned all this terrain, either the feds or the state government. As far as you could go, the government owned it. Joe Taxpayer licensed out the acreage to the military and to the guy with the mining claim and the old rusty equipment. The desert was quiet, 
It was bright and borderless, and there was moon glow in the spines of cactus because now night was coming on, and the lonely clouds scudded across the unvarying expanse of sky. He heard a coyote now and then, like back at the compound when he'd heard that great horned owl. There was the roar of fighter planes, and then later at night, the coyote or the owl. The coyote would come skulking around for food. And he saw Havelina several times, those primordial boars, once a mother and her babies. And people said there were wolves. No wind if no trees, or at least no sound of wind, and few birds if there was no water, because there had to be water for birds or trees. Instead, there was just some Palo Verde and the occasional ironwood. Then, as if in a brochure, he came to the little muddy waterhole, an anemic spring of some kind, here in the deepest part of the valley. He swore he remembered it from somewhere, though he'd never been out this way. Maybe he was in a brochure. O oh, pie-billed grebe, O oh, cinnamon teal, O oh, common golden eye, O oh, turkey vulture, O oh, marsh hawk, O oh, harris hawk, O oh, prairie falcon, O oh, American coot, O oh, killdeer, O oh, morning dove, O oh, barn owl, O oh, yellow-billed cuckoo, O oh, common poor will, O oh, black-chinned hummingbird, O oh, red-naped sapsucker, O oh, northern flicker, O oh, willow flycatcher, O oh, black phoebe, O oh, horned lark, O oh, violet-green swallow, O oh, cliff swallow, O oh, scrub jay, O oh, common raven, O oh, red-breasted nuthatch, O oh, brown creeper, O oh, canyon wren, O oh, blue-gray gnatcatcher, O oh, cedar waxwing, O oh, Tennessee warbler, O oh, western tanager, O oh, black-throated sparrow, O oh, western meadowlark, sing to me. are also something that I'm just completely besotted with and obsessed with, you know. And especially in the desert, you find if you're around anywhere where there's water, like a like a, a fountain or somebody's yard that they have a, an underground sprinkler system for or something, that the birds congregate in these huge droves. And that whole piece, at least for me, the whole point was just to get to the moment where he does the list of birds. <laughs> and um, so that was the center of that piece from, from my point of view. Dry versus Moist, part two, Octopus and Cactus. I swim at this place called Wiley's Baths, every chance I get. And uh, it's an enclosed, it's like they've put a fence around a bit of the ocean. So it's a, a bit of an enclosed ocean. And octopus often uh, wash into that 
pool. And so there's usually at least six octopus, and if you kind of look really well, I mean, they're great at camouflaging, but if you're after them, you'll usually be able to see one. And so I did see one, and I thought of that as a, as a topic. And because Rick was into this oppositional thing, he had suggested cactus, or he had an idea about cactus, and he saw an opposition in those, which is really nice. And so octopus and cactus became an opposition within the piece. There's lots of oppositions within the larger kind of oppositional character of dry and moist. What's best about it from my point of view is that, is that it's from the octopus's point of view, which is, you know, you, can't, you couldn't do that really on a conventional, like say we're trying to do a sort of NPR, you know, National Geographic spot about Wiley's bat. The thing that you would not be able to do in such a piece narrate it from the point of view of the octopus. It was 23 minutes past two, under a full moon. She was going about her jobs, crawling over the bottom of the ocean, jetting backward through the water. She was eating crab. What had she done? Nothing. When suddenly, up above, the wind whipped in from the southeast. Foam, blown in dense white streaks, the surface of the sea took on a spumous appearance. Underwater, the tumbling became heavy. The swells expanded and rushed toward the shore, carrying with them schools of salmon, sea urchins, sea sponges, sea moss, sea spiders, sea slugs, sea cactus, thick brown fronds of kelp. The octopus was lifted too. With wave-like bends traveling toward the tips, each arm acts independently. One retracts with an instinctive jerk, while another coils, lifts, poses as algae. A third tries for the rocky reef, now far below. And amazingly, one arm is still brandishing the crab shell. Three arms appear to wave as if signaling for help. One discreetly, another wildly. One with false nonchalance. That's seven. The eighth arm wraps itself tightly around the octopus's body, which is now spinning and bobbing like a waterfall balloon, and she can't see what with the swirling of sand. Shell rubble is swirling too, mixing with tiny pink mucilaginous eggs of weedy sea dragons and other jammy creatures which only seconds earlier were grazing beneath the fronds of the kelp forest floor. Suddenly the speed of the swell is reduced and the height increases correspondingly. The water has met an immovable force. The wave front rises to 2.5 meters and along with it our friend who is meanwhile sustaining wounds grazing against something hard. 
rest of the wave begins to topple, tumble, and roll over, and the octopus is dumped into shallow water. As the wave pulls back homeward, retreating over the sea wall. When morning comes, the octopus is sitting on a rocky bottom, her pudding head bowed. A shadow passes overhead, and another. Wiley's Baths, the tidal pool into which the octopus has landed, is situated beneath a steep crescent-shaped cliff which faces northeast. It has a natural rock base with concrete sloping walls around four sides, allowing families to enjoy the ocean safely. Each day, as the summer sun climbs in the sky, the tide recedes, and with it the hope of being lifted once again out to sea. Occasionally, a swimmer hovers overhead to take a second look. The octopus waits silently, camouflaged as one of the mottled brown rocks of this absurd world, peering with polarizing vision into the advancing darkness. That was a piece called Octopus, part of seven works that make up a suite called Dry vs. Moist, produced and written by Rick Moody, author of The Ice Storm and The Diviners, and no stranger to radio production, and Sherry DeLees, the award-winning Australian producer. It was engineered by Russell Stapleton and scored by Chris Abrams. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Drivers is Moist, Part 3, Jumping Choya. In the Giro, G54. It's the most dangerous cactus in the Sonoran Desert, arguably the most dangerous cactus in the United States, the Opuntia Bigelow VE, otherwise known as the Jumping Choya. Choya is Spanish for head-shaped, some of the segmented sections of other members in the Choya family do, in fact, look head-shaped. However, the jumping Choya doesn't look head-shaped. It looks like six or seven feet of pure, pin-cushioning evil. Part of the evil is to be found in the spines of the jumping Choya, which are barbed like tiny little fish hooks. If you brush by it, 
You're bound to catch one in you, and it's not going to come out until you cut into your body to get at it. And the further evil, the part that is especially noteworthy if you're walking around in the Sonoran Desert, is the way the jumping cholla propagates. It spawns segments like little jumping cholla tennis balls, which over time separate from the main body of the cactus. So, at the first sign of a heavy wind, or if, for example, something were to brush against the main body of the plant, three or four of these little baby pincushions will detach from the body of the cactus, sort of the way an apple might drop from the trunk of its parent. Somehow the little choya progeny managed to project outward quite a bit. That's where the jumping part of the name comes into it. They get strangely far from the parent cactus and woe betide that animal who isn't looking where he or she is walking. In the G row, G-56, G-56. Of course, the infant choya eventually grows up to be a fully grown cactus exactly like its parent. And that's why you find the jumping choya in these massive groves where danger is on all sides, where with any wrong move, you are bound to find yourself perforated. The dropped joints, as they're called in the literature of cacti, are a method of reproducing without the necessity of bees and sex and all of that unpredictable stuff. And that's why the flowers of the jumping choya don't bloom as regularly as they might. Notwithstanding the demonic aspect of the jumping choya, they are good to eat and are one of the best sources of water in the desert. What you do is take one of the little choya offspring and a pair of tongs and set it ablaze. The barbs burn quite well, and you can pretty well get rid of most of them by burning. You are then left with a drizzling little blob of the remainder, which doesn't taste at all bad. Were you a mean-spirited and idle teenager in the desert, one of your most cherished activities, besides shooting at the no-hunting signage hereabouts, would be to throw rocks into the air in the groves of jumping choya, whereupon a bunch of the little choya babies would spring forth, as if from the sky, bounding to spread the evil jumping choya legacy upon the desert. There's only one other life form that's as ubiquitous in the southwestern desert as the cactus, and that is the real estate developer. In fact, I think that the real estate developers in the desert with their relentless drive to wipe out the expanses of land and replace them with golf courses and fast food franchises and computer-designed planned communities are very much like the jumping choya. 
their hives spawn the same way the cactus does, by spitting out more identical subdivisions, and they rarely blossom the way a homelier and older community might. They spring up right next to one another and move unstoppably into virgin terrain. If only they tasted good. Oh, 7 Hello. 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 Hi. My name is Helen. And I've been playing uh, bingo, and so I thought we'd give you a call and talk with you. Well, great. All right. Okay. What's your first name? My name is Conrad. Conrad. Nice to talk to you, Conrad. Where do you live? I live in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, I'm a southern boy. I was born under an azalea bush on Mardi Gras Day in Mobile, Alabama, sucking on a mint julep and whistling Dixie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. My mom said I was found under a cabbage leaf. That's good. (laughs) Hey, listen, one of my favorite foods is uh, collard greens. Do you ever fix collard greens? Doggone right. Collard greens and and bacon and uh, bacon grease and, uh, and cornbread, it don't get any better than that. I'm telling you, my grandmother said it's not good unless you put enough grease in it. Right. <laughs> are you are you from the south? Uh, absolutely. I'm from Alabama also, All but right. a little north of there from Montgomery. You know what pot liquor is then, don't you? <laughs> you, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you win? I did. I oh, won. Oh, great. And the great. winning numbers on my card was your telephone number. Oh, oh you, you lucky rascal. <laughs> The conjunction of this really stately, melancholy, sort of broken chord piano thing that Chris composed for that section, and this bingo tape, and the narrative of the, the jumping choya, the cactus in that section, somehow the three of them go together so well, and yet, you know, sort of on paper, it, it looks like it's a false match. It can't possibly yield any fruit, but it does, at least for me, it's really beautiful. I'd recorded that quite recently at an Elks Club in a little town in the Panhandle of Florida, which is um, basically inhabited by retirees, and to me, it matched perfectly what one aspect of what Rick was talking about in his writing. So that, yeah, that's where that came from. It, to me, that they were the same kind of people. That he, that he was referring to, and that activity seemed really emblematic of the kind of, um, the kind of lifestyle <laughs> and the phone call that follows it where somebody rings up somebody and talks to them randomly after having got their phone number from their winning bingo card. Seemed somehow to fit as well. <laughs> um, and it seemed, it's, it was kind of, kind of an idleness in the whole thing and a, and a pointlessness. <laughs> 
The arid southwest in which the jumping Choya jump is another point of intersection between Sherry and Rick, and that is Texas. Producer Sherry DeLees was born in Texas, and author Rick Moody has spent time in Marfa, Texas, a town known for mysterious lights that can be seen in the desert at night, a mystery that has remained unsolved for the last 120 years. Drivers is Moist, part four, Marfa. I never actually saw a tumbleweed until I was in Marfa, Texas. There weren't just a few tumbleweeds in Marfa. Tumbleweed lined every road. And the roads were empty enough that it wasn't unusual to see two or three authentically blowing across the road. They can be really enormous. When one tumbleweed meets another, the two sometimes conjoin themselves, and then you get a kind of uber tumbleweed flush up against the barbed wire by the side of the road. And there's a lot of barbed wire in Marfa. Tumbleweed is actually named Russian thistle. One theory is that it arrived in flaxseed imported from the east, but it's now just about everywhere on the prairie, as you would imagine. Tumbleweed is good at dispersing its seeds. Another local attraction during my stay in Texas were the so-called Marfa Mystery Lights. There's a certain stretch along the road from Marfa to Alpine where you go to see them. The locals have even built a sort of hut with state tax dollars in which you can shelter yourself while you attempt to locate out on the empty range, the legendary lights. You might be forgiven for imagining someone out in the prairie as having some fun with flashlights, yet various groups of resourceful local citizens have driven out toward the lights across the empty waste, trying to find the kid with the flashlights, who must be pretty hale, since the first sighting of the mystery lights dates back to the end of the 19th century or right about the time of the first appearance on this continent of Russian thistle. Not only is this kid with the flashlights pretty old, but he has enough time on his hands to be out there every night until dawn. Something must explain it, something besides swamp gas, but the guys who work the observatory east of town are too busy hunting for extraterrestrial intelligent life to explain it.
after I left Marfa, an American poet, Robert Creeley, one of the great poetic voices of the later 20th century, was working in Marfa. Creeley had bad lungs, but he'd been working well, as I understand it, and he didn't want to leave. But eventually, he became so ill that they had to drive him to the hospital in Odessa, a couple of hours away. He didn't manage to pull through. When I think of my own time in Texas now, I think of Creeley, and I often think of his incredible poem, I Know a Man, which goes like this. As I said to my friend, because I'm always talking, John, I said, which was not his name. The darkness surrounds us. What can we do against it? Or else shall we, and why not, buy a goddamn big car? Drive, he said, for Christ's sake, look out where you're going. Texas was its own country briefly, and it still seems foreign enough to be one. That was Marfa, part four of Dry versus Moist. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. Today we're playing a suite of pieces called Dry versus Moist, produced by Rick Moody and Sherry DeLise. The series is an exercise in process and randomness where Rick and Sherry drew a list of random topics from a hat and then explored those topics through text, sound, and music. We've been talking to Rick and Sherry about how they put these pieces together. So, Rick, why Marfa? Well, I was in Marfa in 2003, and I think I was there right after I met Sherry at um, Third Coast, so it was much on my mind. And when it became clear that we were making these pieces that had a lot to do with the desert, just relied on that material, because I also knew that Sherry, despite her beguiling accent, is a yank <laughs> and, uh, and a Texan, so I felt like we should get all, as much Texas material in there as we could. <laughs> well, I, in, in a funny kind of way, I've, I feel the same. It feels like Texas is, is mine and Rick's place. It's the thing with, that we share, which is kind of funny since we both live in other places. But, um, yeah, we both seem to have an attachment uh, to Texas. This despite the fact that you live in New South Wales, Australia. Yeah. Drivers is Moist, Part 5, New South Wales. It's a spacious recording. You first hear the scale when a bird flies through and its call is echoed by large structures in the environment. A ring of hills, I think, and a lake, definitely. There's a noise floor of insects, soft hissing of shrimp, the occasional splash of a finfish, Sounds like dusk, 
sounds humid. Into this tranquil scene makes Holly's heavy footfall. Big dyslexic Holly pushing her way through the bush with her equipment, appearing next to a stand of fir trees. She's out of breath, lumbered up the trail at sunset with the penetrating square waves of crickets drilling holes in either side of her skull. She has a cough mixture hangover. You can hear Holly's own scenery in the recording, hear her knitting the sounds together, creating a place to be herself. For a few minutes, there's nothing much. There's the sluggish exchange of salt and fresh waters on seagrass beds. She notices this is a good place to cry. Walks back down the trail a hundred meters, takes a crap, and leaves a second mic set up for the flies. They're like tight little motors spinning, far, then close, and they land on the mic capsule with a thousand pound crunch. She returns to her headphones. Eyes closed. Reflections describe the shape and size of the clearing. Reflections sculpt the air, like so many leaf edges. Sounds ebb and flow. What bird is needed here? What song would make the situation right? It's hard going when there's nothing to excite the air. And lo and behold, just then, extended maniac laughter of a kookaburra reaches her left ear a split second before it reaches her right. And a curlwong whistles ooh-ooh like a disapproving schoolgirl. They must be calling from opposite ends of the lake, their arguments delayed and attenuated. Piss off. I'm here, it's mine, screw you. American birds sing as if they've been to a conservatorium, she thinks. Here, their shrieks scratch the sky. And that's the way Holly hears it, like two people standing each other off at a distance, like when she listens to Cardew and John Cage. Now she's hearing something perfect, and she wonders how it will turn out. When the drama is over, she takes off her headphones, goes down to the water, and splashes it with a stick. She is still hearing rumble from the Pacific Highway. 10 kilometers away.
here. Can you talk about how you came up with putting the uh, Wimbledon final and the New South Wales one? Well, you know, I think that was just, one, it just sounded great. I mean, it was just so extraordinary the way they both um, sort of screech out every time they hit the ball. And because there were these two birds, uh, you know, one of the central kind of images in that is a, is a lake that's got a reflective quality. It's kind of surrounded by hills. And, and then the piece is talking about a recording. And on either side of the lake, there's a bird. And they're maybe talking to each other. That, I think the two women on opposite sides of the tennis course, firing a ball back and forth and crying out to each other. I think that was probably the inspiration for that. I, I, I just remember hearing it and, and actually thinking, is this a bird? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a bird? And Gwen, that's the kind of spaces that I, that I was talking about before. I think, you know, when you, when you kind of open things up and you, you make something that's that's odd enough, you know, that doesn't quite sit like mortar on a brick, you know, when you make a sound with a text that doesn't sit in that kind of tight relationship, you do open up a space where people have to enter it. it you know, they can not enter it, but you did, and you form your own story. And that's why I think working from the, the specific and the subjective doesn't lock people out, as it often ha has the bad reputation of doing. I think it actually opens, opens it up for people to bring their own experience in. I mean, if that had just been the sound of the actual birds that were referred to in the text, that's what I mean by like a brick and mortar relationship, you know, it's just kind of illustrating what's already happening in the text. Well, you wouldn't have wondered anything. Your imagination wouldn't have been activated in the same way. Dry versus moist, part six, wave diary. Rick, let me ask you, what about this next piece called Wave Diary? Wave Diary actually uh, was one of the last pieces of text written for the piece, and it came out of a feeling that we didn't have enough moisture on my part. And so I generated this extra piece just because um, I wanted to have sort of an equipoise between the, the dry stuff and the moist stuff. And... I had actually written this little bit of diary about all the ferry crossings that I have to do to get to my house, and I sort of uh, re-edited it and, and sort of glued it in with the others so that we'd have equal time. first weekend of summer isn't a time you associate with high seas. The worst seasons are autumn and winter, when the cabin of the ferry tends to be entirely empty. The passengers in the off-season have seen a lot of heavy seas, and on this Memorial Day, the boat is packed. People are rushing to the lavatories, groaning as they go, misery is general. And it's not the size of the waves, you know, it's the direction from which they come. Straight over the bow, or broadside, or some combination of over the bow. 
bow and broadside. Conventional wisdom suggests that you ought to stand outside on the deck, so I stand outside. How lovely is the drama of the storm-tossed sea. When it's sunny like this, the waves are more marble than they are water. They're veined like marble with the foamy trails of white caps. And the waves are as implacable as marble. The boat deals with them like they're marble, threading its way between, plunging down and up. No wave is like any other. If, for now, things are becalmed, that only indicates an inexplicable wall of ocean soon to come. There's a prevailing wind, but these anarchic waves are no slaves to its dictatorship. They crash against other waves, they annihilate one another, they throw off sheets of salt water that sweep across our bow. This is how it seems today. A guy is standing outdoors with me and he says, that's a nice one. And then a minute later, there's another nice one. And the ferry pitches. Light makes it all unforgettable. This is an opera of the elements, earth and air and water, and the fire of their collision, the smell of low tide, the film of salt spray. The waves, bright green and white, Winslow Homer waves against pilings and buoys, against rocks, against beaches, against the nuclear power plant up the coast. The coast is so clear in the distance that you could pluck up a length of it and warm it in your palms. Someone points out a seabird in the open water, a solitary duck, or is it a gull or cormorant, bobbing down and up in the tempest. A white cap breaks over the bird and it struggles onto the summit of the next, as though it's helpless to do otherwise. Why won't it fly? Is there nothing to do but wait out the storm like this, at the mercy of weather? Some guy's truck plunged off the Orient Point ferry last week. They hadn't sufficiently accounted for the weather, or they'd packed the boat too full of cars, or the driver hadn't properly engaged his brake. Luckily, he wasn't actually in the truck at the time. see our texts to be read, a jumble of characters in a language now defunct. Once there were mariners who spoke this tongue, but they are retired from view.
Wave Diary, part of a suite of works called Dry vs. Moist, produced by Sherry DeLees and author Rick Moody. Music composed by Chris Abrams. We have one more section to play, and it's called Vinylator. Sherry, is this one dry or is this one moist? Well, the Vinylator, it's really interesting because... Um well, I'd like to hear Rick talk about the vine later, but for me it's dry, and that's why it's there. <laughs> the cricket sound is very dry. Something about the oldness of vinyl feels feels dry. So to me, it's a dry piece. But I think Rick thinks it's a it's a hermaphroditic kind of piece. That's exactly right. I think it's like halfway between each. But that's sort of what I love about it. And I also love that it says from a certain superficial standpoint that it would be foolish for the piece to be completely referential to dry versus moist. Like you need a curveball somewhere and the vinylator is the curveball. Dry versus moist, part seven, vinylator. To all you wax fiends, this is for you. ultimate lo-fi weapon, Vinylator. It uses 64-bit processing and advanced filtering and resampling to create authentic vinyl simulation. As if the audio were a record being played on a record player. Wow, this is a slick DSP plug-in. Basically, you can now experience the entire oral history of the vinyl medium through the use of one nice, shiny and sexy interface. Seriously, there's even a year knob that automatically filters your songs to what the quality of the vinyl sounded like in that particular era. The sliders give you access to scratches, dust, warp, noise, so you can pretend to wear out your MP3s like they were your grandparents' record collection. This basically rocks. Because in my humble opinion, it makes MP3s sound so much better. It makes them sound like vinyl. It's a cheap and quick way to get those guys saturated, noisy and grainy. Thank you. 
Vinylator by Rick Moody and Sherry DeLise, piano by Chris Abrams, and engineered by Russell Stapleton. Vinylator is the last of a collection of pieces that comprise a suite called Dry versus Moist. We've been talking a lot about how this collection was conceived by its creators without the constraints of it having to fit into any kind of format, which is what we love about it. But the pitfall of that is that we're a few minutes short. See, while we can play whatever we want, we still have an hour to fill. So we're going to throw in something of our own. This is one of our short docs from 2003, an experimental sound piece that blends 1940s Dr. Pepper radio ads, original violin music, and sounds of thirst and thirst quenching. A little dry, a little moist. It's called Misfire. Yeah, there's we're home in America. And I see a day. Yeah, there's we're home in America. And I see a day. When Dr. Pepper will be in every home in America. for hunger, thirst, fatigue, and boredom. I'll have my usual Nelly soup. Lettuce on toast and a cola, too. I'll have the same, boss, the same as you. Me, too. Me, too. Me, too. Me, too. Wake up. Thank you. 
Okay, uh, let's start. Wake up! Get an icy cold Dr. Pepper. Quick antidote for hunger, thirst, fatigue, and boredom. Misfire by Sarah Varney and Paul Fry. You're listening to Resound. When sort of chance procedure kind of had its heyday in the, in the 40s and 50s after surrealism and so forth, what they imagined they were doing was describing the world. There's ballpark walls. You allow these kinds of methodologies to just sort of do their thing and, and sort of undertake to describe whatever... Know, comes to the Birds at water holes, surface, octopus and cactus, that you come to see what you were really trying to say anyhow, and what you were saying is, this is a way of talking about the world. You know, dry versus moist is a way of thinking about the world. Country western songs? Oh, and that's right, and we had Ghent, New York, and Ghent, Belgium. Kind <laughs> <laughs> ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.